Be advised, the following episode contains discussions of drug misuse and sexual assault. One of my friends that was already addicted to heroin invited me to go with her to her dealer. I did, and I ended up shooting up for the first time um, with her. And I remember thinking, like, this is what I've been waiting for, that explosion, you know, of, of lights in, in your head. And I knew, like, right then I was, I was in trouble. is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. I've agreed to keep part of Katie's identity private. She's 29. She barely made it through high school. She didn't always have a home. Plus, drug addiction runs in her family, and she was not spared. Our nation is obsessed with individual responsibility, but personal and collective responsibility go hand in hand. In equal measure, we should be addressing government policy failings. Katie's story offers some solutions. Katie, let's start with your childhood. What was it like growing up here in New Hampshire? I used to say that I had a very normal childhood up until the age of 10. Uh, I recently realized that's not true. I lived in Amherst actually for the first five years of my life, my father was pretty severe alcoholic. And um, but my parents broke up, we ended up moving to a motel for a while. We were in a homeless shelter for a while, but it was never scary. My mom always made everything a game, right? Um, she had that personality where she could make everything fun. When we were living in the homeless shelter, um, we were all sleeping in the same bed, because that's generally how it works. You have one bed. And at one point, we pushed the bureau in front of the door. And I remember, again, my mom made it a game like, oh, we're going to move around the furniture, you know. So that's kind of where things started to get a little, you know, odd and different from, I guess, an average childhood. And, uh, you know, got a little older. My dad got several DUIs. And uh, finally, he sat us down one Halloween. I remember I was nine years old. And he said, um, you know, guys, I promise you, I'm never going to have another drink again. He didn't for the rest of his life. And then when I was, let me see, 12 years old, it was right after my little sister was born. We found out that uh, my mom was dealing drugs. Um, we thought she was just dealing them. And me and my brother, who's a couple years older than me, we thought this was not okay, but understandable. She was a single mother. My father didn't pay very much in child support. So we thought, you know, she's doing what she has to do to support us. And we didn't love it, but we accepted it. And then uh, about six months after that, my brother, I remember my brother came into my room. I'd never seen my brother cry. He's six, seven. He's a big dude, very large man. And uh, he came into my room and he closed the door. And I'll never forget the image of him sliding down my wall and just crying and saying, I just saw mom doing drugs. And uh, we were both very upset. My brother just, you know, stormed off, locked his door. I was just sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And my mom came in and, um, you know, we talked about it for a little bit. Nothing got resolved. And uh, she offered me a drink. It was my first drink was uh, from my mom, who was high at the time, right? I doubt she would have done that if she wasn't. Um, and I remember that first time I, I got drunk, right? Because, you know, Captain and Coke to a 
12 or 13 year old girl is a lot. Um, and I drank it and I got drunk. And I remember thinking like, I want to feel this way. I want to feel this way forever. And that is a huge red flag right there. But obviously, I'm a kid. I don't, I don't know that. I just liked not having to feel not having to feel the pain of knowing my mom is in active addiction now, not having to feel, you know, my brother, who is, you know, this bright, shining, uh, you know, Greek god of a human being to me, right? Don't have to think about the fact that I just watched him cry. Don't have to think about how are we going to take care of my sister, who was a baby at this point. So I ended up being her main caregiver, my little sister, and uh, eventually. And so I felt I have to take care of this family, I have to keep this family together from the ages of, you know, 12, 13 until 15. It was my job to make sure DCF or DCYF didn't get involved. That's the Department of Children Families. It's my job to make sure the police don't come here and see the way that we're living. It's my job to make sure the school doesn't find out. So, you know, I have to show up every once in a while at least. And I eventually, you know, all my efforts were for naught. Uh, DCF did get involved. We were taken away when, the day before my 15th birthday in 2006, 2007, I'm sorry, 2007. And um, my sister went to foster care for almost two years. My brother aged out of the foster care system. I went to go live with my father, which was a blessing. Um, but at the same time, we were separated. You know, I was separated from a little girl who I had raised, you know, for, for almost three years. And uh it was very difficult. It was really, really a difficult time. So again, I started, you know, using drugs and alcohol, you know, smoking marijuana, things like that, really whatever I could get my hands on. And, um, you know, I barely, I went through high school. Uh, that first year I did very well um, after we were taken away. And then my junior year, I did well the first semester, second semester started to slip. By the time I got to my senior year, I was drinking and smoking so much that I, I just didn't want to show up to class. I didn't see the point. And um, I ended up having to drop out and do night school classes to get, you know, an, an equivalency diploma. GED? It wasn't a GED. It was like a, a special diploma they had for night school students at the high school. So it's similar, but not exactly the same. Now, if I could take it back just for a brief second, when I was in that semi-normal period of, of time when I was, I don't know, six, seven, eight, my dad was very, very into Carl Sagan's Cosmos. He was very into all like scientific programming history, you know, back when the History Channel was, you know, not about ancient aliens, back when it was actually a History Channel. Um, we would watch that together and we'd watch Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And I remember him explaining some of the more complex concepts to me. And um, I remember the way that he explained it. He could very well have been an astrophysicist himself. My father never finished eighth grade. So I had this man who really could have, in my opinion, worked for NASA. He was an absolute genius. Um, explained string theory to me when I was 10. Like this, this kind of genuine, scientifically minded, I would say genius. And uh, my mom was always very much more artistic. She would read us poems at night. She read me Harry Potter every night. When that first came out, um, I was dysgraphic. I don't know. It's similar to dyslexia. Um, 
kind of, you know, unable to write, unable to read. I was way below my, um, my class for reading ability. And through her, you know, working with me every night and reading to me every night, I was able to shoot in the third grade from a first grade reading level to a fifth grade reading level. And that was genuinely due to their efforts to make sure that I was, they so badly wanted me to be normal. If that makes any sense, they so badly didn't want me to be other or different or in special education. I remember in second grade, one of my teachers suggested suggested that I might have ADHD. My parents lost it because um, they so badly didn't want me to be different. And, you know, obviously today our understanding of mental health is very different than it was in the 90s. But they just wanted me to be treated like everyone else, even though I was already a little different, a little bit of an emotional kid, you know, kind of a diva. I remember um, I once got up on the table at a sub shop and just started singing, man, I want to feel like a woman. (laughs) I was like five (laughs) years old. And just, you know, I just, I always like to be in the spotlight. I always like to, you know, just be around people. And um, so my parents, basically my point is my parents were both very, very intelligent, But, I mean, again, my mom also dropped out of high school. Um, So even with their immense intelligence, they they never did anything with it. And I, I saw that, and I so badly didn't want that for myself. You know what I mean? So I never thought that I would end up like my parents. And isn't that the, the great tragedy, right, um, that I ended up just like them? You barely graduated high school. What happened next in your life? So I just scraped by in night school, and I immediately moved out of my father's apartment. Um, I was so rebellious, and later on in life, I apologized to my father for the way that I I was, because I was horrible to him. (laughs) You know, it wasn't his fault, everything that had happened to me, but I I was very mean to him, always sneaking out, you know, never listening, curfew, good luck with that. You know, after you'd raised a child, you're gonna put a curfew on me? No, no, not me at 16. So I moved out, immediately moved in with some friends. Right before I moved out of my father's house, I was sexually assaulted. And uh, I remember I came home from work. I'll never forget this day. I I picked up my best friend and we had done a couple of pills here and there. And I... I never liked them. They never made me feel anything. So I was like, what's the point of this? I'm not spending money on this. I'm driving home from work. And I had just gotten a, a Facebook message from my um, my rapist. And I had you know, blocked him uh, on several different accounts. And he, I, I remember I was just crying in my car and saying, I'm never going to be able to get away. I'm never going to be able to get away. And my best friend, you know, trying to help, not knowing at all what, you know, what was in store for both of us in the future, offered me a Percocet. And I said, you know what? Fine. Yeah. Anything right now, anything to get away from this feeling. And that was kind of the beginning of the end. Um, I don't know if, if you know, or if your listeners know, but Percocet, Oxycontin, those are forms of opiates as heroin is, as um, fentanyl is. They're all the same feeling they all give you the same feeling is just method of delivery and intensity so that was the beginning that was the beginning um and i didn't understand i didn't understand what i was doing you know what i mean my mother uh was a heroin addict as well 
And I didn't understand that I was basically doing heroin. I really was. So I started and I I just kept doing it. And I was like, I want to keep feeling this way again. I want to feel that numbness. I want to feel nothing. Because most of my life I'd been told I was too much. You know, I feel too much. I'm too emotional. I'm I'm too loud. You know what I mean? Um, So I wanted to dull that part of me. And in doing so, I ended up becoming addicted, not even knowing. I didn't understand that I was getting a physical dependence until one day. Um, This was a year and a half into my active addiction. As you may or may not know, the government started to realize that there was an overabundance of opiates. You know, Purdue Pharma was over, you know, um, selling them. Doctors were overprescribing them. And the government put a huge squeeze on the doctors. And all of a sudden on the street, it was dried up. It was done. It was gone. Everything was gone. And um, that, and I got very sick. I was dope sick for the first time in my life. Um, sweating, you know, throwing up every, every, like the worst flu and cold combined you can imagine. I remember wondering why I felt the way that I felt. Why am I feeling this way? And um, I stopped. I just stopped. <laughs> I stopped uh, using opiates because they weren't available. But I kept doing other, you know, party drugs, like, you know, whatever was available, ecstasy, cocaine, still drinking, still smoking weed. Um, And then, you know, continuing through that, uh, I was around 20 or 21 when I got back into Percocets, back into that lifestyle, again, became physically dependent, was no longer able to get them. And a friend of mine said, well, you know, Katie, it's at this point, I realized it was the same as heroin. And um, one of my friends that was already addicted to heroin invited me to go with her to her dealer. He did. And I ended up shooting up for the first time um, with her. And I remember thinking, like, this is what I've been waiting for, that explosion, you know, of of lights in, in your head. And I knew, like, right then I was I was in trouble. But right before... And this is horrible, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, but I remember right before she put the needle in me, she asked me, are you sure? And before I answered, I remember this thought unbidden came into my mind. I want to know what my mom picked over me. Now, looking back, that isn't how it works, right? You don't pick one over the other. I never picked drugs over my friends and my parents and my little sister. I thought I could have both. I thought I could manage both. It's just not the case. That's the saddest statement. It's just, like I said, it was unbidden. It just came. That someone chose drugs over their child. And she and she didn't. I know she didn't. Because she was the quintessential mom, right? PTA. Uh, went on field trips with us. She, God, she was such a mother. She was meant to be a mother. So I know she never picked it over me. I know that, looking back, because I never picked it over anything else, so I know she didn't either. But you did think that at one point when you were younger and didn't understand everything. Absolutely. 100% I thought that. I really did think that she had picked drugs over us, over all of us. You said the first time that your friend shot you up, you had this explosive feeling. Mm -hmm. Was that better than 
any other type of drug you'd ever tried before? And what is that like? What's your body feeling? So having done opiates before, it was similar, right? It was that similar feeling, but the delivery method, it goes straight to your brain. There's no waiting period. There's no, you know, having gone to school a little bit now, there's no um, going through your stomach and then into your bloodstream and then past the blood brain barrier. It goes straight to the brain. So it's more intense. It's very intense, particularly the first time. Um, And it's a sense of relaxation that nothing can touch you. Nothing can harm you. You just don't care about anything. As someone who is constantly thinking of everything that could go wrong, not only in my own life, but in the lives of everyone in the world. Um, Just as an example, when I was, I think, five, I always had insomnia. I don't know if you remember, but there used to be those commercials or infomercials of if you donate five dollars you know a month you can save this african child yes oh my god then they had the distended stomachs and they were crying it was like 2 a.m and i woke my mom up sobbing we have to save them so that's always been my mentality it is my job to save everyone it is my job to fix all the problems in the world so for someone that's always had that mentality to not care and not feel anything, it it was like a dream. It was really like a dream. Take me through a day or a week in the life of someone who is using heroin. Every single day is the exact same. There's no difference in days. They all blend together. Um, for me, before my parents passed away, before I became homeless, I would wake up And if I was lucky, I had saved myself some heroin from the night before. If I was unlucky, I woke up sick immediately, right away sick. First thing on my mind, how can I get money? Who can I manipulate? Who can I rob? Who can I, you know, convince? And once, you know, you have that money, which usually takes several hours to convince or manipulate or sweet talk, you know, in my, you know, friend group, I hesitate to even call them that, but in my, you know, um, social circle, I guess at the time, uh, we would drive to Lawrence, Massachusetts, we would get our drugs, we would come home, we would all use together, everyone would go off to their respective apartments, or they'd stay with each other, sometimes people would stay at my apartment when I still had one, and um, it was always, and then we'd, you know, pass out, or, you know, fall asleep, and immediately wake up and do the exact same thing always how do how do i get the next one even when you still have some how am i going to get the next one when this is gone it's always number 1 always in one instance and this is looking back this should have been a huge red flag but i was so deep in at this point i've always encouraged my sister in school right school has always been what I've told her will, you know, get her out of, you know, poverty or, or whatever situation we may be in. And I remember she, I always, like, I mean, always, I would sit with her, do homework, you know, so excited about her grades. I remember once I was driving to Lawrence and she called me. And she was so excited to tell me she'd gotten all A's. And I said, that's great, baby. I'm driving right now, so I'm going to have to call you back. I never called her back, you know, and that goes back to, I didn't pick it over her. I didn't consciously choose not to call her back, to not be excited. It's just that my brain had been hijacked 
literally hijacked. And I can talk a little bit about the science of that, how drugs hijack your brain. How does that happen? The way the drugs work, they go straight to your amygdala. So in psychology, the amygdala is basically your reptile brain, the most basic part of your brain. Every animal on this planet has an amygdala. It's what tells you to eat, to sleep, to breathe, to drink water, and to have sex and procreate. It hijacks that most basic part of your brain and tells you, you need this to live. You know, you need, like, it's not you want this. You need this to survive. It's almost like if I had been starving and she had called me and said, hey, Katie, I got good grades. And there's a sandwich, you know, a hundred, you know, like a hundred yard dash from me. I would just, you know, I'd be like, that's great, but I got to go. You know, (laughs) like That's really what it was like. It's exactly how it felt. You know, it's exactly how it felt. So that's where we, you know, like I said, it comes back to I never chose it over her. It just was always at the forefront of my mind. How long did this go on? How long did my active the active go? heroin use and the really bad times? So it's so varied as it is for all addicts. So at 21, I started uh, IV use of heroin at about 22. Now, um, my mom worked at a drug. At this point, my mom had been clean. My mom got clean when I was 16. She worked at Keystone Hall in Nashua. It's a rehab facility and inpatient. And, you know, I had her car. And one night I like someone took someone what we call burned me. Um, They took my money and and didn't come back with drugs. And I was just so fed up already. I hadn't even lost anything yet. I hadn't lost my apartment, my job. I was just fed up with the lifestyle. 22 years old. Done. I'm done. So I remember I I had her car and I went to go pick her up from work. When I picked her up, I said, Mom, and I just said it just like this. I said, Mom, I've been using heroin. I pulled up my sleeve, showed her my track marks. I said, I want to go to treatment. Now, this moment in life, this, you know, pivotal, I would say moment, this moment that, you know, I could have gone one way, another way, a thousand different ways, ways, really. I always think about it. My mom said, I said, I, I said to her, I need to go to treatment. And she looked at me and she was quiet for a moment. She said, is that what you want to do? And I said, I don't know. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? And she said, we could do that. Or you could come stay with me. We can detox you on the couch. You know, we'll get you Gatorade and Ben and Jerry's and um, Suboxone, which is, uh, you know, a medically assisted treatment for uh, opiate addiction. And um, you just write it out on the couch. So thinking, you know, she works in treatment. She's been in recovery for however many years at that point, I think six or even more. I remember going, okay, well, she must know what she's talking about. And looking back, I would never, as someone in recovery now, I would never suggest that someone detox on my couch ever, no matter who it is, even including my sister, who I love like a child. Why did she suggest that way? So I never asked her. I never asked. Um, But looking back, if I had to take a guess, um, I think that she wanted so badly to be the one to save me, right? I think that so, I think that so badly she wanted to either, I know that she felt immense guilt over her active addiction in my childhood. So I think that this was her way of trying to make it up. I can save her. I can do this um, on my own. Also, there could have been some shame around that. You know, she worked in the recovery field. People knew her. 
I think that she she wanted to keep me away so that she wasn't seen as, you know, a failure, which of course no one would have thought of her that way. But there's there's so much pain that goes along with having a child in active addiction. You want to be the the savior. It's your child, right? You need to protect your child. You need to save your child. This is that what we're told, right? When you become a parent. And um the thing that you learn, especially in recovery, you can't save anybody, no matter how much you love them. I've had people that I love to the core of my being that I could not save. That was the first instance. I was on Suboxone for over a year. I did not taper off of it ever. <laughs> um, so the hard drug use was one year, and then that first treatment was about a year? About a year. And then um, I went back to using heroin. I was still staying at my mom's house trying to hide it from her. That worked for about seven months, I think. Um, And then when she found out, she was always threatening to kick me out, but she never would because she, again, she's my mom. She has the guilt and the shame. So what turned everything around? It was a long process. I ended up going on methadone and then I got an apartment through um, housing, moved out of my mom's, was using uh, very heavily at that point. And my father got cancer. My father got stage four, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. My mom was, said to me, I'm going to be there for you. This is my first big loss in life, right? Um, my first big instance of, of losing someone very close to me. And she said, we're going to get through this together. We're going we're gonna to do this together. And then she died first. She, she died uh, seven months before my father on December 18th, 2016. I wasn't prepared for it. Obviously, I was. Nobody was. Uh, she died very suddenly, and it was. It, it was. You know, I was already doing so badly, and it just caused me to do even worse because I adored my mother. Uh, she was my best friend, and uh, then you know, my father died seven months later. There was no one to make sure that I was paying my rent, which they both always did. You know, it was three hundred dollars a month. How could you not? you know, put $300 to a drug addict that's getting high for at least two days. So (laughs) I ended up losing that apartment. I ended up doing what we call couch surfing in the, in the homeless community. Um, I went to go stay with initially another friend that was an active addiction. And then I jumped over to an ex-boyfriend who didn't know that I was actively using. I took advantage of him for as long as I could. Um, went back to that same friend who was actively using, ended up in what we call it a trap house. It's where everybody basically is using and, and it's all drugs. The house is, you know, not well kept and all that goes on there is, is it's like a shooting gallery. That's what we call it. Everybody just shooting up. Um, so I ended up there and finally, now I was helping to support the habit of the person who actually, it was their apartment. You know, I'd give her a little bit of money every day to, you know, be able to stay there. And one day she comes to me and she said, you got to (laughs) go. Now, really quick, please understand how socially unacceptable you have to be to be kicked out of the trap house. (laughs) I mean, you just, you know, to the point where even the other drug addicts didn't want to be around me. That's how miserable I was. That's how I was. I was horrible. Um, That was the low point. It it got to be about there. I lived in someone's uh, walk-in closet for a while with my cat. <laughs> Me and my cat lived in a walk-in closet. There were so many points of 
of like homelessness or, or unstable housing that finally I said, oh, oh, you know what? Fine. Fine. I said to this woman, I'm going to go to treatment to have, you know, what we call three hots in a cot, three meals in a bed, um, get as much drugs as they'll give me in treatment. And uh, I'll get my government assistance check, which I was getting at the time, and I'll be on my way back out using. And um, it was April. It was snowing that April. Um, It was bad. And I went to AdCare in Worcester, Massachusetts. And thank God that government assistance check didn't come for 10 days. And they gave me a seven-day taper from methadone. Because at that eighth day, when I had no drugs in my system, it was like I woke up from behind the wheel of a car going 90 and wondering how I got there. What's that process like on the taper? So it's very, it's very painful. Um, It's, they start you at usually what they do, what they call what's called blind dosing. So you don't know how many milligrams of methadone they're giving you, but you can assume it's lower than what you'd like. Um, And what they do is they bring you down a little bit more every single day so that you go through withdrawals, but it's not as severe as um, if you had nothing at all. Still very uncomfortable, you know, still uh, a lot of stomach pain, still a lot of, you know, physical pain. You're just so uncomfortable when you're going through withdrawal and the methadone takes the worst parts of it off. It takes the worst edge of it off. But at some point you have to detox. You have to get these drugs out of your body. I went into treatment April 20th of 2018. I spent 15 days there. And one of those days was actually my birthday, April 27th. I turned 26 in treatment. And I remember at this point, you know, me and the other people in the treatment facility had gotten to know each other really well. And my birthday fell on a Friday. Now, Friday, we ordered pizza. (laughs) And um, when they asked, oh, can someone help hand out the pizza? One of my friends shot his hand right up. He said, I'll do it. He ended up hiding a whole pizza (laughs) and bringing it to me that night with another good friend of mine, Latiana. And um, they said, you know, we couldn't get you a cake, but we got you a pie. And (laughs) it was just a thought. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so even in that first, you know, 15 days or at that point, I'd only been there for seven, um, seven or eight. And even in that first few days, I was already seeing the amazing capacity of kindness of people right? These people that society has thrown away. We used to have, this is a horrible, horrible joke, and I don't mean it. um, But we used to have this joke that we are somewhere just above child molesters and rapists on the social scale, just above, like, but not, but we're still like below violent criminals, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, huge stigma. Absolutely. And all of us had been cast out, right? At some point, we'd been cast out from the rest of society, but they were, they had this great capacity to to love and to love, to love me, to love each other. But we didn't, none of us knew how to love ourselves, you know, but that's where it started. With respect to social justice reforms around housing and drug misuse, I've seen a shift among progressives toward a more humane and less judgmental approach. Reformers are starting to use the term unhoused instead of homeless, as it's based on the premise that everyone deserves a home and that using the term homeless may imply that a person is less than. How did you become unhoused? 
So I spent one day <laughs> totally un- unhoused, um, not having any form of shelter. But I spent almost a year without a home, without a like a home base that was mine, um, just jumping from friend to friend to whoever I could you know, get to let me stay with them for a period of time. But one day I did spend sleeping at Greeley Park in Nashua, um, Nashua, New Hampshire. Did you meet people at Greeley Park who are in the same dire situation? And what can you help people who have always had a home understand about people who don't? So I didn't meet anyone at Greeley Park, um, but my mom, as well as working at the rehab center, she also worked at Maple Street Shelter in Nashua. And I met a lot of homeless people in that time, um, a lot of unhoused in that time. And I can say that most of them were extremely kind. I remember we had this one man who was so amazing. He used to be a college professor, and he had schizophrenia. And one day he just came in. This man had nothing. He had no job. He had nowhere to live. And he came in with this big stuffed, brand new teddy bear for me, just because I used to hang out with my mom at the shelter, you know, and they all knew me. And just that capacity for kindness and and giving what little you don't even have, you know, the little that you have, but I can't even say they had anything. They have some of the biggest hearts, you know, that I can, that I've ever known. Now, in respect to homelessness, particularly in New England, um, I've recently done a little bit of research on this. Anybody that wants to go to a homeless shelter in New Hampshire, particularly, needs to be clean. They're what's called dry shelters. You can't uh, have a positive drug test, you can't drink while you're there, or you will be kicked out onto the street. Doesn't matter if you have anywhere to go or not. Now, I am of the opinion that that is not the correct approach. Uh, Massachusetts, I believe it's about 40% are what are called wet shelters. Um, so you can go there, you know, they prefer you not to be belligerently drunk. Um, if you are under the influence, they ask you to go to your room But kicking people out onto the street, especially in New England, where we have harsh winters, we have harsh weather. I just don't see that being the answer. Cutting people off from society saying you're you're so taboo that you can't even be with the other unhoused people. It's just not it's not the answer. It hasn't worked. We've tried this for so long. It doesn't work. We'll get into some of the ways that you think things could be better and how government and individuals could be more helpful a little bit later on. Do you have any other stories of people who are or were unhoused? I guess I'm trying to ask you to help people who have not been in that situation relate to them on a human level and be more compassionate. I remember there's this this one man, right? And I was spending the evening with my mom. She had worked overnights at the time. We ordered a pizza and it was snowing outside and we weren't even really watching the cameras as well as, you know, we probably should have been. And she glanced over and she saw this man, this older man, much older, um, probably in his eighties, get out, get out of a cab. And he just kind of looked around and he just started walking down the street, but they had dropped him off at the front of the shelter. So my mom went outside and said, you know, can I help you? 
And she brought him inside. He had no idea where he was, no idea where he came from. Um, could have been anybody's grandfather, anybody's. Um, we ended up, you know, I, I spoke to him while she went through his things, found out that he had just been discharged from a local hospital to the shelter where he had never been before <laughs> without them finding out if he had family, if he had been to another shelter in the area where they did know him. He was still um, a, in, an, in an acute state. Like he still needed medical attention because he couldn't tell me what happened five minutes ago, but he could tell me all about the Korean War. Like that's the, you know, that's the, that's the thing. So he wasn't stable, but they had released him, right? Um, we ended up finding out that his family was looking for him <laughs> and he they just dropped him off at a homeless shelter. Now, if my mom hadn't been the person that she was, she would have just checked him in. You know what I mean? He could have been anybody's family. So many people that I saw, particularly at my mom's shelter, but some people that didn't qualify for shelters because they were actively using, they had family and friends, children, parents, brothers, sisters that loved them wanted them to come home, wanted them to get better. Some people had their families in the shelter because they lost their jobs or lost their homes. I mean, it's I saw a whole range of people during my mom's time working there and my time in, you know, knowing people in active addiction and in homelessness. I mean, I had people that I did drugs with that were my age, you know, in their 20s. I did drugs with people in their 60s. Homelessness and drug addiction do not discriminate based on age, race, sexual identity, creed, religion, lack of religion. It doesn't, where your socioeconomic status definitely doesn't discriminate there. I met every type of person you could imagine, not just people, you know, that were from my situation, from, you know, poverty and, and, you know, bad home lives, people that had perfectly normal home lives and just for one reason or another ended up, you know, as drug addicts and then ended up homeless. Help humanize the person who misuses drugs. Who are some of those people you came across and what are some of their stories? I have met so many, so many beautiful people, both in active addiction and in recovery. Uh, one of my very good friends, um, she is a nurse. I have another good friend that is a lawyer. Um, both of them are clean today. Obviously, I don't think they'd be able to hold down those jobs if they weren't. Um, we. The best thing that I can say is that we're everywhere. <laughs> we are literally everywhere. I had one friend when I was in active addiction, and I remember she had a son that was a little bit younger than me. And she, you know, used viciously as I did. And I just found out that she passed away um, a couple of months ago. And I remember her and her son were so close, so close. And he often tried to convince her to go into treatment. And, you know, sometimes she would, sometimes she wouldn't. And I think about him, even though I think I only met him once, I think about him. And... God, I just hope he's doing okay. And I I hope he understands that he couldn't have done anything, right? He couldn't have fixed it. So he, she was someone's mom, you know? I am someone's daughter. My, another good friend of mine is someone's dad, you know? And 
people, you know, fight to get their families back after, you know, if they're in recovery or, and sometimes they never do. Sometimes their families never forgive them or, or, you know, they view it as a moral failing rather than a disease, you know? So they think that they made bad life choices and they can never trust them again rather than seeing it for what it is. Let's talk about education. When your life was off track, you said that one of the last things that you lost was your books, and you had always carried them around with you. And I wonder, why was that? And what books specifically were so important to you? So as I mentioned earlier, both my parents were very intelligent, and they both loved to read. I gained that love of reading as well. And when the drugs weren't giving me the escape that I needed anymore, books did. Books did. And I particularly uh, carried around novels. And I had a couple of textbooks. Um, Life of Pi was actually one that I managed to hold on to, and I still have to this day. Uh, That one really gave me a lot of hope. And it's a, you know, it's a fantastical tale that um, got me out of the situation that I was in. I remember I had this old psychology textbook and I would leaf through it and I would just be fascinated. And I would, I would, it was a basic psychology text, like for a psych 101 class. And I would go on my phone and spend hours on Wikipedia learning about these concepts that I was just so fascinated by. I've always been fascinated by other people and by the human mind. I just think it's so interesting. You know, in general, it was something that tied me to my parents. Um, A lot of the books I had were books they gave me. um, And they had both passed away at that point. So even when I, you know, had to get rid of the majority of those books, 90% of those books, I held on to a few that were extremely special to me. And I still have them to this day. You struggled to graduate from high school. Yet this spring, you are the valedictorian at your community college. What do you hope to tell the students? And how did you make such a dramatic turnaround academically? I started at my community college planning on doing a certification program. I just wanted to get my drug and alcohol counseling license so that I could help other people, you know, achieve recovery. I learned how to be consistent, to be hardworking, to show up and be accountable in my 12-step fellowship. Those are things I learned first before I started school. When I started school, I immediately fell in love. I fell in love with school, something I always loved to learn. It was just a matter of, you know, dealing with my home life and then my own active addiction in school that took me away from structured learning. So when I got back to school, I I found that I wore it well, to my surprise, to no one else's, as my friends constantly remind me. But I was very surprised at how well I did. And, um, as I said, I registered for a certification program and with the encouragement of some really amazing professors and my advisor, I changed that to a psychology major. A tra- they call it psychology transfer major so that I can go on to a four-year school. Um, and I, I just continued and through the things that I learned in recovery about being accountable and doing my best you know, just my best. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to put in, you know, the effort that I have. 
And I just, I don't know. I ended up as valedictorian. I'm still shocked by it. I'm going to be honest. I'm still surprised. But again, my friends constantly tell me, we're not surprised, Katie. (laughs) Do you have an idea of what you might want to say? So I'm going to hold back a little bit on that because I know some of my friends are going to listen to this and I want to surprise them. But I'm definitely going to talk about hope, gratitude, resilience overcoming adversity. I mean, look at everything we've seen over the last year in this country. You know, we had to watch some things that none of us ever thought that we would, right? And I'm not even talking about the coronavirus at this point. It it was horrifying. Some things were really horrifying. George Floyd, we watched a man right. die. All of us. Yes. It's horrifying. And with that, we still got up went to class, went to work. And we overcame, we talked about it, right? In in college, as um, if you remember, you talk about those current events going on. And we worked through it. We called the people that we loved to try to make sense of the world that we found ourselves in. I mean, probably going to be talking about that a little bit and how, you know, that strength of character, the other graduates, they can carry that into the rest of their lives. What major do you plan to declare? So I'm a psychology major. I'm going to stay with that. Um, I definitely want to do uh, what's called clinical psych. So there's therapeutic psych and clinical psych. Um, In therapeutic psych, you're planning on becoming a therapist. Um, I plan on doing research one day. So that's clinical. And you're interested in transgenerational trauma, the line of research that explores the transfer of trauma from one generation to another. I imagine there's some personal reason. So, yeah. So you're not wrong. <laughs> As, you know, a lot of my psychology professors have said and other students have said, a lot of us are in here to make sense of our own minds, right? And our own lives and our family's lives. Um, I am as far back as I can trace fourth generation addict. Now, that's just on my mom's side. So there's me, my mom. Also, in my generation, there's my brother, um, my father, and then on my mother's side, her father, on my from my grandmother, her grand her mother, which is my great grandmother. She died. Um, she was an alcoholic. She actually died slipping on ice, going and getting alcohol. She bled out on the street. I mean, and then you know, my father's Irish, so I do. Do I need to say anything else? So, <laughs> um, so. I do want to know, what is it that, let's just take my grandmother, for example, who's never had a drug problem in her life, no alcohol problems, but she was raised in chaos, right? She, her father was abusive. Her mother was an alcoholic. Why did she choose a partner that was also an alcoholic, also was not a good husband to her? And then my mother, she had an alcoholic father. Why did she choose and I mean multiple. My brother's father, he was also an he was a drug addict and he was abusive. And then she chose my father, who was an alcoholic. Then she chose my sister's father, who had addiction issues. I mean, and then, of course, you know, there's me. I've had several partners that were addicts. It's why do we make these choices across generations? It might seem obvious, but I've seen this in people that have been adopted and never known their their biological families. I'm interested in trauma in general, right? As someone who's gone through sexual trauma, childhood trauma, um, my sister also went through trauma when she was in foster care. I would really like to, and 
she woke up next to my mom when my mom died. That's a trauma. I want to know how trauma affects the brain. How has it changed our brains? So those are, I'm interested in so many things. What are some of the skills you learned in recovery? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Every, everything about me. <laughs> what are you doing on a daily basis? So daily basis, every day I wake up um, and I will, I'm going to put this out there. I'm not religious. Um, I don't really believe in God, but I wake up and I pray. <laughs> I know that sounds so, so, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Diametrically opposed, right? Someone who's not religious. I was a strict atheist for most of my life, in fact, um, to wake up and pray every day. And I don't know what I'm praying to. I don't care what I'm praying to, but I I wake up and I say, you know, just let whatever's supposed to happen today happen and this give me the strength to carry out your will. And um at the end of the day, I, you know, give thanks for getting through the day clean. Um I call other people in recovery every day. Every single day. If I don't see them in person, I talk to them on the phone. I make sure that I'm always tapped in. We have this saying, you know, if you stay in the center, you can't fall off the edge. So I keep myself in the center of the recovery community. So I'll wake up, I'll pray, you know, whatever, eat breakfast, go to school, go to work at night, come home, probably play video games, <laughs> and uh, and go to bed. It's, it's a very boring life. <laughs> But a stable one, God, a stable one. And it's all, can I say, they say kids crave structure. And I always thought that was bullshit. And, oh, my God, do I love structure? I, I have this structure that I've never had in my life, like a plan such every moment of my life is planned out right now, especially with all the things I'm doing. Um, and I love it. God, I love it. I never want to go back to the chaos. How can we as a society better address housing problems, drug misuse problems? So in terms of housing, we have enough houses in this country to house every homeless person. There is no reason anybody should be homeless in the richest country in the nation. Absolutely no reason. Or one of the richest countries. I don't know where we are anymore. The amount of money that we spend on on the military, on policing, you know, drug addicts, on all these things. If we just took a little bit of it, I'm not even asking for much, a percent of a percent, a fraction of a percent, we could get people into homes. And that's, I believe, say you have somebody that has substance use disorder that is an addict, and they are also homeless you got to start by getting a roof over their head, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of Maslow's, um, sorry, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. So as you know, at the base, we need food, shelter, warmth, yeah, you know, water, basics. basics. You can't expect someone to move up the pyramid, right, to something like self-actualization um, if they don't have the basic necessities of life, right? So... There should be this basic level that we don't allow people to fall beneath. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we need the will yeah. to make it happen. Right. Now, that being said, I know I'm not um, not stupid. I know where I live. <laughs> I know what this country uh, is and is not. Um, if I was, you know, kind of a blind optimist, I would hope for that, but I'm not. So 
in terms of substance use disorder, which makes up the majority of the homeless population are people with substance use disorder or other mental illnesses. What we, in my opinion, what we need to do, right? And this is based on studies in other countries all across the world and the war on drugs. End it. We need to stop. We've been doing this for, what is it now? 70 years, 80 years. We've lost this war. We have failed clearly. Just look at the crack epidemic, the opiate epidemic that we find ourselves in now. It's done. It's over. Give it up. <laughs> um, and in other countries, multiple studies across decades have shown that not just decriminalization, as we're seeing in Oregon right now, right? They've de decriminalized all drugs. Um, it's akin to like a traffic violation. Decriminalized, not legalized. Right. A ticket. A like ticket. a parking $100. ticket. Now, I don't know if you know this. Not a lot of addicts have $100 to spare. Well, so true. if you can't pay it, what they do is they put you in front of a board in Oregon. And, you know, it has like a doctor, a social worker, you know, someone from the local treatment community. And they say, like, do you want to go to treatment? And they evaluate, do you need treatment or were you just, you know, a businessman with some coke on you. You know what I mean? You're not doing it that often. Or are you someone like me who is, this is my whole life is using drugs. And if you can't pay it, they send you to treatment. If, if they discern that you need treatment. So I love that model. It's a step in the right direction. I am of the opinion that we should not just decriminalize. And I know that this is wild, but it's based on evidence. Legalize. All drugs. All drugs. Because here's the thing. I'm going to pose a question to you. You, you have a beautiful home. You have a beautiful life. You, I bet, have enough money in your bank account right now to go get enough vodka to drink for three months straight. Am I right? Yes. Why aren't you? I don't like the way it makes me feel if I drink too much of it. I have no use for that much alcohol in my life. Would you say that if you drank for three months straight, you would miss out on things in life? That oh, definitely, to you? definitely. Your family. I wouldn't be present. No, nope, you wouldn't be. Now that is that is the problem. Addicts don't want to be present in their lives. But if we were to legalize all drugs, now they have to go to a doctor to get it. Of course, we're not just going to sell it at the local corner store. But legalize all drugs, and we use the money that we're using for policing to get them housing, to get them job training, to offer them treatment, to get them reconnected to society. They're going to have things in their lives that matter to them that they want to be present for. And they will choose recovery. I'm not saying that as, you know, like, I think that it's been shown in Switzerland, they did exactly that. They had a heroin clinic. And um, kind of like a methadone clinic, but for heroin. Anybody could come in. They started off with a 1,000 patients. They got them housed. They got them job, tra job training. Um, and after, I believe it was after the first five years, out of the first 1,000, less than half a percent is still. So that's, what is that? One or two people? <laughs> like one or two people from the original 1,000 were still on that after 10 years. Most of them made the choice to get clean because they had a life that mattered. Um, again, all that social aspect of using, the finding ways and means to get more, right? The 
How, who do I have to manipulate? How am I going to get money? You know, hanging out with your friends afterwards. That all goes away. It's a moot point. It's a moot point. You have no social circle anymore in, if, if it's legal, right? So we just take the money that we're spending on policing. We put it into treatment. It, to me, it seems so simple, right? And I've read so – I mean, again, Portugal did something similar to what Oregon is doing. They decriminalized all drugs. Um, going back to Switzerland, it's a very uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? In terms of that area, they're pretty conservative comparably to the rest of that area. And um, they did a referendum. I believe it was 10 years ago, if I'm remembering correctly. And they had the people vote. Do you still want this to be a practice in this country? It was like an over 90% voted, yes, we still, we want to keep heroin legal. That's incredible. What about people, Katie, who would say to you, that's all good and fine, but I don't want to pay for it. You got yourself into this mess. Fair. That being said, you are already paying for it. You are paying for me every time I went to the hospital with a you know cyst on my arm from shooting up wrong. You're paying every time the ambulance would come get me um, when I would overdose. You are paying when I went to treatment. And you're paying every time the police arrested me. You're paying every time I was in jail. You're paying, you know, I had some nice Fig Newtons when I was in jail once. You paid for those Fig Newtons. Um, You know, you are already paying. You're paying for vagrancy. Vagrancy is a crime in most states. Every time the cops have to go up and break that up, you are already paying. And every, as far as I know, every study that I've seen shows that it will be cheaper to decriminalize, legalize, and stop policing, put, um, oh, geez, I'm forgetting the word for it. Things uh, like needle exchanges, help me here. Create the needle exchange needle programs. Needle exchanges, naloxone, um, there's a special word for it. harm reduction. Harm reduction programs, you put harm reduction out there, people are less likely to end up in hospitals. You know, you stop policing it, you don't have to pay the police as much. And people choose treatment. You give them the option. Most of the time they choose it. The problem right now is, especially in this country, we don't have enough beds. We have this thing called the critical period, right, in psychology, in substance use disorder. Um, Oftentimes, you know how many times I said, I want to go to treatment, and a bed wasn't available for a couple of days? The critical period was gone. I changed my mind, right? So when someone makes that decision, of, I want to get clean, we need to have a place for them to go right away. And just one last thing to anyone that would say, you know, you got yourself into this place, get yourself out. You know, I don't want to spend money on it. Not for nothing. I was a homeless junkie. And I'm doing some pretty cool stuff with my life. You know what I mean? I'm I'm valedictorian. I'm probably going to go on to a pretty good school, probably going to contribute a good amount to society, not just in taxes, which I will, um, and I do, but in helping people, right? So a lot of people that I met in active addiction were extremely intelligent, extremely empathetic. They would also contribute amazing things to this country if they were just given the chance. What are some of those resources that can help people who are struggling in the way that you had? So my biggest suggestion, if anyone is struggling in the way that I had, um, 12-step meetings saved my life. 
saved my life. Um, if you go to 12-step meetings in New England, eventually you will find me because I am always around. I'm doing service work. Um, if that's not for you, which I understand, I could not go to a 12-step meeting for the first, you know, for most of my life um, because I was really afraid of the big G word. I didn't like God, you know, how much they talked about God. You don't have to believe in God to come. Just going to throw that out there. Go to treatment. There are options if you're in New England. Um, AdCare Hospital, which is where I got clean, will pick you up anywhere in New England and drive you to the facility. You don't need a car. They come and get you. Talk to the ones you love because guarantee you they already know. <laughs> if it, you know, It's likely that they already know or have an inkling that something is up. Tell them that you need help. If you, for whatever reason, because I know in this country it is very hard to access inpatient care, if you can go to a doctor and ask them for a taper. Now, I am a personal believer in complete abstinence, right? It's the only thing that's ever worked for me. As I mentioned before, I did a lot of medically assisted treatments and they never worked for me. But I'd rather you be on medically assisted treatment than dead. So that's a place to start. But I highly recommend 12-step fellowships because the therapeutic value of one addict, alcoholic, whatever place you find yourself, whichever 12-step fellowship you find yourself in, the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is without parallel. It really is. You, you can't get that from – a th- and I, lo- I go to therapy, all right? I love my therapist. But she will never know what it's like to be homeless and doing whatever I had to do to get money, to get drugs. She'll never know what that feels like, right? But your sponsor would, right? If you go to a 12-step fellowship, your friends, the network that you create, these people in my 12-step fellowship, when I said I got into community college, oh my God, it was like I said I got into Harvard. <laughs> these, these, ah, uh, they lost it. They lost their minds. Never mind when they found out I was valedictorian. They're throwing a huge party for me at like a ballroom. I've never, they're my family. You can find a family here. And I remember, I'm, I'm just going to say this, at my one-year celebration, one of my really good friends said, um, you know, Katie, when you got here, both my parents had passed away, wasn't very close to the rest of my family, wasn't speaking to my grandmother. He said, you know, you came here and you needed a family. So we became the family that you needed. That's wonderful. Isn't it? <laughs> I love them. I really do. I, everything I have is credited to them. I love you guys. <laughs> if you're, I know you're listening. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to share? Help is out there, the period. Regardless of whether you are an addict yourself, homeless yourself, um, if you're a family member of someone who's addicted, there are resources for you as well. Al-Anon, Narcanon. There's so many resources out there. Do a Google search. You will find them, right? There's hotlines, meetings. There's so much out there. And give yourself a break. Just give yourself a break. I never thought I deserved recovery. If you are even considering it, you know where you belong. You belong in recovery. You have so much to offer. Just come along with me, if you will. I'd love to see you there. A few weeks after I recorded this episode, I got a text from Katie. She told me she's been accepted to Columbia. I'm so happy for her.
If you have a story you'd like to share, message me on social media or drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. One last thing, would you be willing to help me attract new listeners? Post a review on Apple Podcasts. Please tell a friend to listen too. Thank you.